Ephesians chapter 6, uh, verses 10 through 12. I, I just put my translation on up here because uh, I end up doing that anyway, so I thought we might just save us some time a little bit. So it'll read just a touch different than maybe what you're reading in your New King James, but I think we can get the gist. It says, finally, you all must be strong in the Lord and in the power of his strength. You all must put on the full armor of God in order to be able to stand against the craftiness of the devil. Because we do not struggle against blood and flesh, but against rulers, against authorities, against the world rulers of this darkness, and against the spiritual ones of evil in the heavenly places. And the old king, or the uh, new king James would read, principalities and powers against rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual wickedness in high places. So as we begin this morning in, in kind of a, an opening statement, I want you to think about this before we go to prayer. What's the most valuable thing that God ever created? That's the question I want us to, to think about. What is that most valuable thing? I'll tell you right now, it's not the world. It's not this planet of earth. It's not the angels in heaven. It's not the universe and all that speaks to God's glory. No, I believe that the most valuable thing he created was the human soul. And how do I know that? It's because of all the effort that's been exerted throughout all existence to both save them and destroy them. And that's perfectly evident from this passage here in Ephesians. As Paul closes this epistle, he discusses the topic of spiritual warfare. We're not fighting physical things, but rather we're fighting spiritual things. And there are entities that are opposing those who proclaim the name of Jesus. And the conversation very quickly shifts to the who. Who is being discussed? Who are the spiritual entities that we are fighting against? Are these literal beings? Are they angels? Are they demons? Are there different classifications of angels and demons? Uh, can we be possessed by them? Or are these governments and evil rulers uh, that are human in nature? And while this is not going to be an ex exhaustive study necessarily on the subject of demonology and other ologies. Um, we're not going to be able to explain every aspect of the spirit realm, but hopefully by the time we're through with our study, we'll have a, a solid understanding of who the rulers and authorities, who the principalities and powers are that are being discussed here in Ephesians chapter 6. So we're going to begin this morning by trying to identify the enemy. Who's being talked about here? Again, our focus is not on the carnal. It's not on flesh and blood. That's not who we're fighting against, as our text read, but we are fighting against spiritual things. That's our focus. And the various entities, naturally, that are working on a spiritual level to attack and defeat the Christian. And when you think about that, that's, of course, very serious business, much more than fighting for a country or fighting for land or riches, because God's most valuable creation, the soul of man, is literally on the line. And by accepting Jesus through obedience to the gospel, you have decided to be baptized for the remission. Uh, and because you've decided to be baptized for the remission of sins, because you have faith in Christ as the Son of God, you have enlisted yourself in that ultimate battle between good and evil. You've switched sides from the side of sin and darkness to the side of light and truth and righteousness. Now to stand with Jesus and against that old serpent of old, uh, the devil and Satan. And he has identified you, the Christian now, as his number one target. And he's going to use his craftiness, as our text says, to take you down. 
And so the question is then, how is Satan going to fight you? And I think that's a very good question to ask. We have to be aware of the tools of the devil. 2 Corinthians 2 and verse 11 says that we are not ignorant of his devices. And from the description in these passages, it's a little bit difficult to tell exactly. Just from the words alone and the definitions that appear there, it appears to be talking about spirit beings and spiritual entities that we will notice in a few moments. But there's some pretty vague language used. And who's being talked about here is not made especially clear. And I think that's important. As we begin here this morning, there's some preliminary things that I want us to establish and understand from a Bible study uh, manner, in a hermeneutic manner. The Holy Spirit doesn't waste words, and sometimes He doesn't give us as many words as we would like. Now, why is that, do you reckon? You know, I'd sure like to know more about heaven. Who wouldn't like to know more about heaven? I'd like to know exactly what it looks like. I, I want to know what it smells like. I want to know what it tastes like. I want to know everything I can about heaven, but I'm not given those details. Why not? Wouldn't that help me? Wouldn't that make me stronger in my faith and more determined for the goal? One might think that it would, but the Holy Spirit doesn't give us those answers. I'd like to know more about what eternity is going to consist of. What are we going to do in the presence of God for all eternity? Holy Spirit doesn't give us those answers either. Why not? Because God in His infinite wisdom knew that what we were given was sufficient for us. But what we are given is, and what we are given is enough to let us know that what we read is real, that it exists, and that it's worth putting your faith and hope in. And so whenever we see that, there's a Bible study axiom that we need to figure out, a, a rule that we always need to live by, and that is notice when the Holy Spirit is intentionally vague. There's a whole lot that could be said about the spirit realm, but there's not. And that should clue us into a few things. Equally important as to notice when the Lord says something very important is to notice when He doesn't say something. The Bible is purposely vague when it comes to the nature and function of principalities and powers. Now, it's not mysterious, but it is vague. And there is a difference between those two things. Now, what often happens is because something is vague, many people aren't content with what the Holy Spirit has revealed. They look at that and they think, well, this is not enough for me. There's too many questions that I have uh, that are just simply not answered, as if the Holy Spirit has shrouded some crucial piece of salvific altering information about the spirit realm from them uh, on purpose just to rock their faith. So they start, go, start to go look for answers. Now, usually they're going to find answers, but they're not going to be answers in the Bible. They're not going to be scriptural, God-given answers. And you can do a Google search uh, not right now, but later, on the topic of spiritual warfare. And you will find some very bizarre, blasphemous, and bewildering pieces of false doctrine uh, to ever exist about the subject. And if we're being truthful, most of what happens when we start trying to identify this enemy and people aren't content with what the Bible says and they go start looking other places is you get a lot of stuff that's just made up. Now that's sad, it's sad that some people are like that, that uh, they're not content with what the Holy Spirit has given, and they start making stuff up, but it's the truth. 
Uh, they literally just come up with it out of thin air. Some dude somewhere, possibly with a PhD next to his name, which people usually really respect, they start cooking something up somewhere. And it's usually what amounts to his own Bible spiritual realm fan fiction. This is what he thinks it probably was like, or probably is, or it might appear to be. And most of it's based off of maybe one tiny piece of scripture, one uh, tiny sliver of inspiration, and then a boatload of conjecture and fanciful imagination. A lot of it also comes uh, from people who don't recognize literary genre in the Bible. They don't know the difference between things that are literal and things that are spiritual or metaphorical or symbolic. They are literalist in every sense of the word, and we will notice that as we go along. They can't tell the difference between styles of language and genres, or they just simply ignore context. And when you read the Bible this way, you're going to come up with a lot of false doctrine as a result of that. So brothers and sisters this morning, beware of people and theories that start diving into the spirit realm and to spiritual warfare and what it feels like and what it sounds like because a lot of it's not true and a lot of it's not based in the Bible. We're going to notice what is based in the Bible this morning. Remember this, while information about the spiritual realm is vague, it is not mysterious. Uh, We are given exactly what we need to know. We're given all the information that we need, but it's not as much as we would like maybe to have. It's a little vague, but it's not mysterious. So let's start with some simple definitions. We're going to start with the word arche. This is where we get the word principalities, uh, meaning beginning, origin, first, ruler, power, authority, position of authority, and domain. It has quite a long uh, semantic range. Uh, That's also important to remember in some of these words. Uh, Principality is where we get uh, the word for uh, from RK. The next is where we get the word for powers, which is exousia, meaning authority, power, the right to control or govern, dominion, the area or sphere of jurisdiction, a ruler, human, or supernatural. So this is pa- uh, principalities and powers. The next is cosmocrator, meaning powers of the world. Now, there's some translations, and if you have one of these, you may just want to go ahead and throw it out. That's not true, but I I do say this. But they will try to translate this as cosmic powers. That's not right. Just because cosmo is in there does not mean it's talking about cosmic. This is the Greek word for world, and and it comes up quite a bit. It is not a mysterious word. Uh, It is not a... Well, I guess it is a foreign word if you don't speak Greek, but it's not a strange word uh, to the New Testament. So it's talking about world powers is uh, krator there. And then the next is uh, pneumatikos, meaning spiritual or pertaining to the spirit, a spiritual person. Also, uh, something that is very common in the scriptures where it's talking about the spiritual ones uh, of evil in the high places. Now, the first three there, you could make a case that these are just talking about earthly governmental figures. And originally when I was looking at this, this is kind of what I thought. Because the words themselves have such a wide semantic range that kind of allow for that. However, when we start looking around at other passages in the New Testament, we start to see a pattern uh, where these words come out. And the context of those passages, I think, is very important. So we're going to notice several, several scriptures here. Uh, So just hang on to your seats, if you will. Who is the Arche and the Exousia? 
Colossians 2, 14 through 15 says, Having wiped out the handwriting of requirements that was against us, which was contrary to us, and He, that is Jesus, has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them triumphing uh, over them in it. Colossians 1, 15, uh, it talks about how for by him in verse 16, all things were created that are in heaven, that are on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or principalities or powers. In Ephesians 3 and verse 10, so uh, what's also important to remember is when we find things that are within the book that we're studying. So in the book of Ephesians, we have a couple of instances. I love this verse. To the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church, that is us, by the church, how or to whom? To principalities and powers in the heavenly places. In Ephesians chapter 1, which he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in that which is to come. And then in 1 Peter 3.22, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers have been made subject to him. Now, uh, the word there uh, is a little bit different. Authority is still the same as exousia. Powers come from uh, dynamis, if I remember correctly. So slightly different, but it's a similar uh, uh, wording. It's a similar phrasing. And then in Romans chapter 8, verse 37, Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So we notice that this construction of the term principalities and powers. It's used a few different times in the New Testament. It's across different books. It's in different authors. So what does that leave us with? What are some conclusions then that we can make out of that? Notice the characteristics that Christ disarmed them and subjected them at Calvary, that Christ has been exalted above them, that God created them through Christ, that they are in heavenly places. They are distinct from earthly governments. They are also distinct from angels in this way. Uh, and the manifold wisdom of God is made known to them through the church. So what are some conclusions then that we can make? That they are evil. If you're going against Christ and Christians, you're probably not the best of entity. They are evil. They are created spirit beings that oppose Christ and Christians. They have been defeated by Christ at Calvary, but they still fight against Christians today. They have rank and uniqueness. They possess some kind of power or authority, and they are unable to separate us from the love of Christ. I think all of these are very fair assumptions to make. When we're talking about the principalities and powers, this is who we are referring to that we can see from several other passages. Well, what about the other terms? What about rulers of the darkness of this age and spiritual wickedness in high places? I think the last one kind of speaks for itself. It's very general in nature. But let's talk about who is the cosmocrator. Who is this ruler of the darkness uh, of this age, or uh, the, wor uh, the world rulers. It's in the plural, I might add. But in Matthew chapter 4, verse 8, it says, Again, the devil took him, that is Jesus, up on an exceedingly high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Now, how could the devil offer Jesus something that he didn't have to give, actually? 
That's a fair question. I think the reason for this is because he fits this characteristic of being the ruler of the world. And this is made evident in passages like John 12, 31. Now is the judgment of this world. Now the ruler of this world will be cast out. John 14, 30. I will no longer talk with you much for the ruler of this world is coming. He has nothing in me. Uh, John chapter 16, verse 11. Of judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. And in Ephesians chapter 2, we have this phrase there, and you he made alive who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit, who now works in the sons of disobedience. So, who is the cosmocrator? That is Satan himself. Now again, in Ephesians chapter 6, it's used in the plural sense. So I get the feeling that when it uses it in the plural sense that it's talking about Satan and his cohorts. It's like a Tom Petty and the Heartbreaker situation. It's, it's the collective of them together uh, rather than just talking about the one. It's Satan and whoever sides with Satan in the spirit realm. So who are we fighting? Our non-carnal warfare, our spiritual warfare is against the devil. It's against principalities, it's against powers, it's against spiritual ones of evil. And immediately that should terrify us just a little bit. When we think about spiritual forces so evil and so heinous, and they want your destruction above all else, that should make us a little bit nervous if we think about that in a vacuum for only a moment. But we shouldn't be there too awful long. Because what's important to remember is that we have help because there's spiritual warfare all throughout the Bible. And there's a few passages, I think, that speak to this and that show us the type of help that we have. Daniel chapter 10 verse 12 says, Then he said to me, this is an angel that is talking to Daniel, Do not fear, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come because of your words. But the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me twenty-one days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I had been left alone there with the kings of Persia. And in Daniel, the same chapter, verse 20, it says, Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? And now I must return to fight with the prince of Persia, and when I have gone forth, indeed, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is noted in the scripture of truth. No one upholds me against these except Michael, your prince." Now, here it seems that we have an angel of the Lord that is resisted by evil angels, otherwise known as princes and kings, specifically of Persia and Greece. And yet Michael, who is called here a prince, who we know from the book of Revelation to be an archangel, steps in and he helps the other angel with the confrontation. So here we have another example, I think, uh, where we have the Bible that helps us interpret the Bible. If Michael is a prince, and we know that he is your prince. We know that he is one of the chief princes, and that's basically what an archangel is. It's talking about a rank of angels that he is. Uh, that he is. Uh, and then we have princes in the same context of the kingdom of Persia and of Greece. Then I think we're talking there about other spiritual beings. And what's interesting is the word for prince there in the Septuagint, in the Greek version of, of this Old Testament scripture, it's the same word that we have for principality in Ephesians 6. It's archaic. It's talking about the same type of individual. 
if you ask me. And this is what leads some to suggest that principalities and powers might just be generic titles for good and bad spirit beings alike. Similar really to the term angel that's used in Revelation 12. So let's look at that in Revelation 12 verse 7. We have another glimpse here. And it says, And war broke out in heaven, and Michael and his angels fought with the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought. So again, you have angels used twice here. And here we have to take it as a generic term, that it's representing the good angels that are with Michael and the bad angels that are with the, uh, with the dragon. The dragon and his angels fought, but they did not prevail, nor was a place found for them in heaven any longer. So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old called the devil and Satan, who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. Then I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now salvation and strength in the kingdom of our God and the power of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brethren, who accused them before our God day and night, has been cast down. And they overcame him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, and they did not love their lives to the death. Now again, we need to remember that Revelation is written in symbolic language. So we need to be very careful about making this entirely literal. However, from the several other passages that we've referenced, this is a picture of what happened at the resurrection of Christ. That Satan and his angels, the serpent of old, was defeated. And the rest of chapter 12 tells us that even though he was defeated, he still makes war against the saints. But we can see here that there are angelic beings of righteousness, such as Michael and his angels, that are fighting on behalf of God and on behalf of you, the Christian. We see this in other places as well. In 2 Kings, I think, is a nice example. This is where you have Elisha and you have his servant, the servant of the man of God, arose early and went out, and there was an army surrounding the city with horses and chariots. So he gets a little bit nervous, you might understand, because they're there for them. Uh, they want to kill Elisha because Elisha has been uh, kind of spoiling the plans, uh, if I remember the story correctly. And his servant said to him, Alas, my master, what shall we do? And Elisha says, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. And then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. This is talking about an angelic army. This is talking about an army that surrounds this city that is there for their protection. As Elisha says, there are more that be with us than those that be with them. Never forget that the angels in heaven are very interested in what happens to those who are faithful to God. They are watching and they are prepared. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Are they not all ministering spirits? And that, the, the chapter there is talking about ange, uh, angels sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation. That's their job. Their job is to help those who will inherit salvation, to minister to them, to take care of them. Know, though, that there's a whole host of beings that are against you that don't want what's best for you, but then there's a whole host of other beings who are very much on your side and very much looking forward to what you do for the Lord. Notice this powerful, wonderful verse in Luke 15. It says, Likewise I say to you, there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. 
Now imagine that. Picture that for a moment. I, I reckon a lot of us are going to go watch some football here this afternoon. you got the championship games. And, of course, everybody's excited about that. And if you've ever been in a, in a football stadium where the home team scores a touchdown and you can feel the excitement and the game's on the line and everybody's jumping up and down and they're excited and it's a momentous event, picture that in your mind. And that's just a tiny sliver of what heaven's like when you have one sinner that repents. When you have one person that decides they're going to follow God. When you have one person that decides, I want to be baptized for the remission of sins. That's what's going on in heaven. Those, peop- those angels are watching and they're excited because of people that follow after God. Imagine that. So... The relevant question then is, even though we know there's spiritual warfare, we've identified the enemy, how do principalities and powers fight against us? Now this is the point in which we're going to go a different direction from many in the denominational world. There are people that are convinced a great many things about the spiritual world and the impact that it has on the physical world. And most of them are wrong. Most of them are false. Some people, even Christians, believe that they can be and have been possessed by demons that are tempting them to sin. There are others that believe that demons are behind alien encounters and abductions. I had a study with a guy uh, for a while on this, and it was was a very long study. There are some that point to minor inconveniences in their day, in their drive to work, in their mood, in virtually every facet of their life, and they say, well, that's the work of Satan. It's the work of demons in my life. They're vexing me. They're harassing my spirit. And there are even some worse still that point to literal and diagnosable mental illnesses as the impact of demons and principalities and powers and rulers of the darkness of this world and spiritual ones of, uh, of evil in heavenly places. I'll tell you right now, that's not true. And you might ask me, well, Austin, how do you know that's not true? And there's a few different reasons that I could give you, but the simplest one for me is this. The Bible already tells us how Satan fights against us. We don't have to imagine it. We don't have to picture it. We don't have to uh, uh, fantasize about it. We know how it happens. Satan and his angels, his demons, his principalities and powers wage spiritual warfare against us through means of deception. They try to deceive us. They tell lies. They influence mankind to believe and then spread those lies. That's what's happening. That's how Satan attacks us. That's how principalities and powers fight against us. Well, you might ask, lies about what? Well, surely it's conspiracy theories about the government. And surely it's about COVID-19 and vaccines. And uh, and maybe it's about uh, the election that's coming up in 2024. Believe it or not, Satan doesn't care at all about any of those things. No, Satan wants to lie to you about something a little bit bigger than that. A little bit more valuable than that. Remember how we start, what's the most valuable thing that God ever created? It's not the government. (laughs) It's not America. It's the human soul. Satan wants to lie to you about who God really is. About what righteousness is. About what sin is. About what salvation is looks like and what it takes, what the church is, about how you get to heaven. That's what the lies are about. That's what the devil's trying to deceive you about. It's what he's been trying to deceive mankind from the very foundation of the world. 
there in the Garden of Eden, what did he ask Eve? Uh, aren't, aren't you going to eat of that, that tree there of knowledge and good and evil? I said, no, no, the Lord's told us that, that we can't eat it, nor should we touch of it. Uh, lest we die, is what sheep replied. He said, yeah, you're not going to die. No, he, God's just keeping things from you. He lied. He's just trying to keep you down and, uh, and keep you ignorant of this knowledge of good and evil because he doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't want you to be God's. And he knows that in the day you eat of it, you'll be a God just like he is. He lied from the very beginning. He deceived the woman. The most valuable thing that God ever created is your soul, is you, the real you. Underneath these layers of flesh, there is a you that is real. Satan is out there to make sure that it perishes eternally right alongside with him in hell. And so he deceives people and he gets them to propagate his lies. I, I heard about this recently. It, it kind of made me laugh a little bit. Uh, it's called um, the crab mentality. Um, basically what it is, is if you get a bunch of crabs in a bucket and there's one crab that tries to climb its way out, then all the other crabs will purposely drag that crab down to make sure that he doesn't get out. That's a lot what Satan is like. Satan is a, he's really a crab in more than one aspect of the, wor uh, of the word. He knows he's lost. He knows there's no way he can ever defeat the Lord. It's already a done deal. It's already been settled. But he doesn't want anyone else to win. And he wants to take as many of them down as he can. So that's why he deceives people. That's why he gets them to propagate his lies. Let's notice some passages that talk about this. In 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in latter times some will depart from the faith. How? How are they going to depart from the faith? By giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their own conscience here with a hot iron, forbidding to marry, commanding to abstain from foods which God created, to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. What did these deceiving spirits and demons do? They didn't haunt anybody. They weren't living in a, an abandoned house. They weren't trying to force their way into your brain. They didn't make anybody have a headache or feel stress. No, they introduced lies. They introduced doctrine filled with things that are evil that are from demons rather than God. And then people listened to them. They gave heed to them. And they propagated them from there. They told them to other people. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. The man of sin came, I believe, in the past tense, into the world because of the working of Satan. And Satan uses power, signs, and lying wonders and unrighteous deception. Why did it work, though? Because human beings, those who perish, did not receive the love of the truth. They didn't uh, have the desire to be faithful to God and to follow Him above all else that they might be saved. And as a result of that, they embrace lies of the devil. Here's a popular one. 2 Corinthians 11, verse 13, it says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. And no wonder, 
For Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. Now, this is a very popular verse that people will use, particularly on the Internet. They don't read verse 13, nor do they read verse 15. They only read verse 14. They say, well, looky there. Satan is a shapeshifter. How do you like that? He can shift into anybody. It could be me. It could be my mother. It could be my sister over there. Satan is a, is a shapeshifter because he can literally make himself look like an angel of light. That's not what it says. I like comic book movies as much as the next person. But we as a culture have idealized and fantasized so much about superpowers and abilities that we start looking for them in the Bible. Many people do. Satan is not some OP rogue out of X-Men. Satan is just a liar. And he tries to present his lies as truth. This is not literal language any more than all false apostles transform themselves and shapeshift their facial features into Apostle Paul and Apostle Peter. The devil presents his lies as things that are good, that help people or provide you with comfort, but then actually just go against the doctrine and pattern of teaching that comes from God. In Revelation 20 and verse 10, it says, The devil who deceived them was cast in the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. What was the devil punished for? Why would You're not going to accuse somebody of something that they never did. So if, devil, if the devil's a shapeshifter, if he's out there possessing people and forcing them to be evil, why wasn't that the charge? The charge brought against the devil is he's the one who deceives. And that's why he's going to hell, because he's the one who deceived humanity to take them away from following after God. So, as we conclude here this morning, how do we fight against principalities and powers? We're going to talk about this in more depth, um, Lord willing, here in a couple of weeks when we talk about the armor of God. Uh, but the way that we fight against principalities and powers is by resisting them and their lies and their false doctrine. We see this very clearly in 2 Corinthians 10. In verse 3 it says, For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. How? Casting down arguments. And every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. Spiritual warfare, fighting against Satan and his evil host is not wrapped up in some ritual. It's not in a number of prayers. It's not in trinkets. It's not in charms. It's not in chants. It's not in superstitions. It's in looking at arguments and theories and doctrines, things that are contrary to God's will, and you throw them down. You demolish them. Everything that exalts itself and tries to compete with God and the knowledge that He has presented to mankind, that He has revealed to us, to the world, in His creation, in His written Word, you tear it down. Anything that goes against that. Every thought that slips into your brain that makes it seem like sin might be a good idea, a good thing to do. Maybe it's not that bad of an idea. You take that hostage. You don't let it get to you. Like a prisoner of war, you go after it. You punish it. Not the enemies of the state, but your own disobedience to God, and you repent of that. 
That's what spiritual warfare is. Now, I'll admit that's not very cinematic. It's not very exciting. It doesn't grab a lot of attention. It doesn't stir, stir people up into a frenzy either. As a result, it's maybe a little boring. But it's exactly what the Bible tells us it is. It's vague, but it's not a mystery. In first, 2 Thessalonians 3, verse 1, it says, Finally, brethren, pray for us that the word of the Lord may run swiftly and be glorified just as it is with you, and that we may be delivered from unreasonable and wicked men, for not all have faith. But the Lord is faithful, who will establish you and guard you from the evil one. And we have confidence in the Lord concerning you, both that you do and will do the things we command you. I mean, the Lord direct your hearts into the love of God and into the patience of Christ. Notice, deliverance from the unreasonable and the wicked man is almost paralleled with being guarded from the evil one. Why is that? Because the unreasonable and wicked man has believed the lies of the evil one, has become his mouthpiece, and the prayer is that we can be delivered from such, that they could be delivered from such. And how does that take place? How do you have that confidence? Why did they have confidence? It's because they were going to do and would continue to do the things that the apostles had commanded them. John 16, 33, these things I've spoken to you, Jesus says to his disciples, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Who is the world? We use that phrase quite a bit, as does the Bible. But when we talk about the world, this is referring to those the whole of those who follow after the lies of the devil, that subscribe to false doctrine, that resist God, that are not a part of God's kingdom, that are not a part of the Lord's church. If you're not a part of the Lord's church, by being baptized for the remission of sins, you're part of the world. James 4 verse 7 says, Therefore submit to God, resist the devil, and he will flee from you. 1 Peter 5 verse 8 says, Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Now, that's very scary. Verse 8 is. So resist him. How? By being steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by, the, by your brotherhood in the world. You go the other way. You resist the devil. How? By being steadfast in the faith. And in conclusion this morning, I want to look at this passage here in the Gospel of Luke, and I love this passage. This is Luke chapter 10, and verse 17 says, Then the seventy, and you remember that Jesus commissioned seventy people on what we call the limited commission to go and to preach uh, the good news about the kingdom. The seventy returned with joy, saying, Lord, even the demons are subject to us in your name. And he said to them, I saw Satan fall like a lightning from heaven. Behold, I give you the authority to uh, trample on serpents and scorpions and over all the power of the enemy, and nothing shall by any means hurt you. Nevertheless, do not rejoice in this, that the spirits are subject to you, but rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. I love this passage because Jesus just undercuts all the excitement that they come to him with. And he does it for a really good reason. He's looking into the future when Satan would fall. In this context, he's talking about giving them actual power to cast out demons and cure demon possession, something that doesn't happen anymore, by the way. That's a subject for another time. He tells them, these individuals, that he's giving them authority to trample serpents and scorpions. Literal ones? Maybe. Or are these cohorts of the serpent of old? I think they are. 
it's a description clearly of the power of the enemy. Unless, and I wouldn't be surprised if literal snakes are of the devil, but, uh, and scorpions too. I wouldn't want to be stung by one. I don't want to be bit by a snake. But God created them. That's, that's not what's being described here, I don't think. Trample on them and have all power over, the, uh, over all the enemy. That's talking spiritual. He gave them this power, but he tells them in verse 20, the real victory wasn't in having power over evil spirits. The real power is not having power over the demons. The victory, the power, was that their names are written in heaven. And for you and I, there are a lot of people that try to shift the focus away from God. And they try to shift it onto the devil and on his angels and on that spirit realm and what's maybe going on up there. There's, there's all kinds of battles and things being fought. Maybe there's things that are uh, affecting this world and affecting governments. They try to shift the focus away. These evil spirits only have as much power over you as you give them by listening to their lies. And the Bible is purposely vague about them because the story isn't about them. The message of the good news isn't about them. It's about us. It's about me. It's about you. And most importantly, it's about Jesus the Christ and his victory over all that would stand up against him. It's about God's glory that will be revealed. These are my thoughts this morning. And let us never forget where the true power is. It's not in having power over the demons. It's in being in a saved condition. It's being right in sight of God. It's having your names written in heaven. That's where the joy is. That's what the angels in heaven are hoping for as well. And they're waiting to see what each one of us will do.